Well, good morning, and you are stuck with second string again, but don't worry, because Corey will be back next week, and everything will be fine. Who's your one? Uh, today we're going to continue the study of Jesus' conversations about faith with people. Uh, remember last week that uh, Cody led us through the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and today I've been asked to teach from the, from the story of the meeting between Jesus and the woman at the, Samar the Samaritan woman at the well, which uh, happens right after the uh, meeting with Nicodemus. Uh, like most of John, uh, this story is full of symbolism and deep meaning, and there's all kinds of interconnections all across the gospel, and, and we won't have time to do all that today, but we're going to stick with the theme that we've been assigned, and that's the uh, that the idea of those witnessing conversations. So before we begin this morning, let's uh, pray. Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we give this time to you. Uh, we've made plans, uh, but we surrender them to you to do with what you will, uh, whether it's to, to bring hope or to bring a challenge, uh, whether it's to bring healing and salvation, whether it's to bring comfort or encouragement, uh, whatever it may be, Lord, we offer it to you. I pray that the things I say will be clear and point to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our story for today is found in John chapter 4. That's on page 862 if you're using one of the blue Bibles with us. So I invite you to join me with that. Uh, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 4 of chapter 4. <clears throat> now he, that is Jesus... Uh, had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon. When, the Samaritan woman came, or when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, 
Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. That's the end of the conversation, but the story continues with an afterword, if you will. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more, and then the harvest, I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. The word of the Lord. Well, this would be an uncomfortable conversation for most of us. It's an unlikely encounter. It's the wrong place and the wrong time and the wrong gender and the wrong ethnicity and the wrong life. And it's quite a contrast of the story of the meeting with Nicodemus that we looked at last week. It's not hard to go down through there and see how one is such a reputable person. It'd be an easy conversation to have with them. They're, they're well-educated. They're talking about the same kinds of things. They're the same ethnicity. And contrast that with the woman that we have at the well here in Samaria. One of the important lessons from those differences is that we can't cookie-cutter our approach in talking with others about Christ. We can't get ourselves programmed and have a planned speech in mind and have our heads all set on things, have a pocketbook of brochures and say this is exactly the way the conversation is going to go and set up the time and the place. Sometimes, sometimes unexpected opportunities present themselves and people that we may not necessarily plan on talking with, with issues that we may not be fully informed about or be willing to talk or be prepared to talk with. And that's exactly what happens here. Sometimes... <clears throat> we must simply trust the Spirit and dive into those opportunities as they present themselves. And so, with that in mind, let's dive into the deep water of this particular story. <clears throat> now, the few verses before this that I didn't read give us a little bit of setting for the story. Jesus has just met with Nicodemus, and we're told that he spends a little time in the Judean countryside with his disciples, not doing anything in particular special. And then he heads back north up to Galilee, and he, quote, had to go through Samaria. Well, the truth is, he really didn't have to go through Samaria. 
And he could have gone east up through the Jordan Valley and skipped around Samaria that way, or he could have gone west and up the coast road, made a quick trip that way. But instead, he cuts straight across Samaria, running uh, almost a, a straight line from Jerusalem to Nazareth. But why was passing through Samaria such an issue? Which is clear from this particular story that we read. Well, to, to understand that, we need to digress a little bit in the history, and I hope that's not too boring for you. But when Solomon, the son of King David, died about 924 B.C., there was a civil war in Israel. And under Solomon, uh, is, the kingdom of Israel had become the largest it was ever in history. And uh, when he died, that civil war broke out, and the ultimate conclusion of that was that the kingdom was divided into a northern half and a southern half. And the northern half were the ten tribes that rebelled against the, the rulers in Jerusalem. And the southern half was just Judea and tiny uh, Benjamin. And so the north retained the name the kingdom of Israel, but the southern kingdom assumed the name of the kingdom of Judah. Now, those in the north, the kingdom of Israel at this time, did not acknowledge Jerusalem as the appropriate worship site. They hung on to those old worship sites from the conquest days, mostly in Shiloh and Shechem. And in particular, they liked Shechem, which was in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and you remember from the stories of, uh, uh, of Joshua that that's where he had the covenant renewal ceremony as they conquered the land of Canaan. And that was a really special place to them. They also held only to the old Torah, which is the five books that are traditionally ascribed to Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their only Bible. And so you got these differences in worship, you've got a temple that they built at, at, at Mount Gerizim. And some 200 years later, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. And when they did that, they deported lots of people from, from the northern kingdom, from Israel, but imported folks that they had conquered in other places, and those people intermarried. And the, as a consequence, the... the Differences in worship locations, the differences in scripture, and this ethnic mixing that happened in, in Samaria really set up an animosity with those in the south. And that was, you know, hundreds of for hundreds of years, there was a great animosity between the two. As far as the, the southern uh, kingdom was concerned, the Jews, the Judeans in particular, uh, the Samaritans were worse than mongrel dogs. They wanted nothing to do with them. And that sets the stage for this meeting here that we've got between Jesus and, the, wom and, and uh, the woman at the well. But you wonder about that route. Why was Jesus in such a hurry? You know, some say that it was an object lesson about purity, that he wanted to go through a place that was not religiously acceptable to the Jews for his disciples to learn something. Others say that he had a divine appointment with the woman at the well and that this, was, this, this trip through Samaria was all about meeting her. Others say that, well, there was something going on urgent in Galilee. The truth is we don't know why he had to go through Samaria, but he did. And in any case, they stopped at Sychar, and that's the site of old Shechem. It's about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. doesn't seem like far to us, but when you're walking, especially in the, in the heat of, the, of, of that place, it's a pretty difficult trip. 
It's almost exactly halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth, where they're headed in, in Galilee. This location has a well, and it's by tradition the well of Jacob. You find it in Genesis 29, if you want to look at that story. That's where Jacob meets Rachel. And, and from the well, you can actually see on the mountainside of Mount Gerizim the ruins of the old temple that the, the Samaritans had built there. And so Jesus and the disciples make a pit stop about halfway to Galilee, and, and Jesus waited by the well while the disciples go into the town to try to find something that they can appropriately eat in this unclean place. Probably not an easy task for them. And it's about noon, the heat of the day, and a lone woman approaches Jesus in the well. That's strange. Because in this place and at that time, the common practice would have been for the women to come to the well early in the morning and get water for the entire day. And while they were gathered at the well together, they could socialize with one another and they could help one another draw water because the well's 100 feet deep even today. It's not an easy place to get water out of by hand. And so this gives us some clue that there's something going on with this woman. Why is she not part of the social fabric of that particular community? She's kind of an outsider, whether or not she chooses to be or has been cast out. She's not part of the regular community. And the conversation that follows is initiated by Jesus, and it includes six exchanges between Jesus and the woman. And those six exchanges make this the longest conversation that we have recorded of Jesus. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, six times. And it goes through, give me a drink. Jesus introduces the idea of living water, then has to draw, talk longer about living water. He asks the woman to go get her husband. Then he makes the challenge, you've had five husbands. Then he explains true worship, and it concludes with a bombshell, I am. That's the direction that this conversation is going in. And what we're going to do is take a look at each part of this conversation. Jesus initiated the conversation with a simple request. Give me a drink. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem remarkable or unusual at all. It's not unreasonable. Jesus is a man who's been traveling. It's the heat of the day. And a woman comes, and he's stopped by a well, and a woman comes to the well, and she's got the equipment she needs to be able to draw water from the well. It's not unreasonable to ask a question, can I have a drink? It's hot, I'm thirsty, you've got a way to do it. But there's another dynamic going on here, at least two dynamics. One is, it would have been a scandal for a man to talk to a woman when they're unrelated and unknown to each other in a public place. And that seems strange to us today, but that would not have been a common conversation at that time. And you can see some of that today if you've seen, watched news stories of, of folks in the, in, the, in the Middle East, and especially those Arab countries. This idea of men and women talking together is something that's to be avoided. And it was true in Jesus' day. But there's something even more than that, and it's this whole Samaritan issue that we just talked about a minute ago. There's a, there's a dynamic between a Jew and a Samaritan. And this woman picks up on it immediately and says, How is it you're a Jewish man and you're going to ask me for a drink of water? How did she know he was Jewish? 
but we're not told, but she picks up on it immediately. Maybe it was the way he talked. Now, she and he would have spoken the common language of Aramaic in that part of the world at that time. But almost certainly, Jesus had a Galilean accent. You know, when uh, Jesus was arrested, those around uh, the, the, the campfire identified Peter as a Galilean from his accent. So maybe it's the accent that Jesus has that, that gives her a clue that this man is not from Samaria, but he's a Jew. Or maybe it was his, it was his dress. We don't know for sure, but there may have been some, some dressing conventions between, uh, uh, that, that were different between the Jews and the Galileans, that uh, the clothes they wore may have looked different. Or it may have been that Jesus had a prayer shawl about his shoulders, now, in these days, you've seen the prayer shawls. They're usually only used when, when the Jewish men pray. But at that time, it was not unusual for a devout Jew to carry the shawl with him all the time, so he was prepared to cover his head and pray at any time. So some of that may have been going on. In any case, we don't know for sure why, but she pegged Jesus immediately as Jewish, and she knew that his request to her had broken centuries of taboo between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus just ignored the objection. And he kind of elevates the conversation then from ordinary water to a symbolic level, linking it to God talk. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would have asked me for living water. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. You know, one is you don't know who I am. And that question of who Jesus is is an undercurrent all the way through this story that really doesn't get answered to the end, and then it comes like a bombshell. But there's also the issue of living water. Now, living water in that time would have meant water that was freely flowing, like a stream, or especially like a spring. It was to be contrasted with uh, water that comes from a well or stale water kept from a, that had been collected in a cistern. And obviously living water was much superior uh, to water that was drawn from a well or, or water that was collected from a cistern. But the woman really doesn't catch the shift in meaning. All she catches is the literal level of, of this thing about living water, water flowing, you know, water that's free and moving. And so she responds to him pretty sharply, if not sarcastically, just where are you going to get this water? You don't have a bucket and a rope. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob, our forefather who gave us this well? Not an especially kind response. But the woman has said more than she realizes. In the previous exchange, you remember Jesus said, if you knew who I am, Obviously, she doesn't know who he is and, frankly, doesn't seem to care who he is because she knows about Jacob and that this is Jacob's well. As far as she's concerned, he's just another Jewish traveler she'd rather not be annoyed with at this point because she really doesn't like being with people anyhow for reasons we don't know yet, and he didn't deserve any of her time. But as readers of the gospel, we know better, don't we? We've read the story up to this point, and we know this man is not only greater than Jacob, but this is the man, this is the word that was present in and participated at the creation of the universe. We know that this is, this is the word become flesh that dwells among us here and now. We know that the Torah may have come through Moses, but that this man is bringing grace and truth. We know from the story just a couple chapters back that this man has transformed 
ordinary water into the finest wine. And so that question of Jesus' identity is still floating around down there in the depths. Jesus ignores her sarcasm and begins to press this image of living water. Drink this, he says, and you will never thirst again. It will be like a fountain of eternal life flowing up inside you again and again and again. One more time, the woman jumps at the ordinary meaning. Day in, day out, she has to come draw water. It's a daily occurrence. There's no escaping it. And what a drudgery it is. And it's woman's work, and it's hard work, and it's heavy toting that water back. And so anything so that she doesn't have to worry about satisfying that thirst in her is worth having. And that notion of a recurrent lingering thirst that has to be satisfied again and again points to the need in this woman's life, a need that can only be satisfied by the living water that Jesus offers. Now at this point, Jesus has to be thinking, you still have no clue who I am, but I know all about you. Go get your husband. Now, why would Jesus ask this? How is it related to the conversation at this point? Where is Jesus steering this conversation? The conversation has become uncomfortably personal at this point, between strangers, and the woman curtly replies, I have no husband. It sounds like she means to close off the conversation at that point. She's tired of this annoying person. Is she angry? Is it shame? Is it avoidance? Probably any or all of those are at work at this point because she's done with this. But Jesus won't let it go. Yes, indeed, he says. You've had five husbands. And the man you live with now is not your husband. Now, that's a startling revelation that can only come from divine insight. We wouldn't run into that kind of thing ourselves in the conversation. We'll talk about that later. But it's interesting and instructive that Jesus does not pursue issues of morality or fidelity at this point with righteous indignation. And maybe we shouldn't either, because we don't know all the backstory of this woman. Five husbands, okay. Has she been widowed? We don't know. Has she been in one of those horrible situations, of, situations of, of having to bury a husband after a husband after a husband? Is that what happened? Did she have husbands divorce her? Because she couldn't divorce him. Maybe she was just abandoned by somebody. Had this woman loved and lost again and again? Mm. She may have been loose by this point in the story, but there's no hint here that this woman is a prostitute. We do know that it's almost impossible for a woman at this place, in this place and time to survive even without a man. So there had to be some kind of connection with a man there in order for her to survive. 
Maybe she was living with a male relative. We're not told. I think the kindest thing that we can say about this woman is that she's a survivor. She's a survivor. Probably hardened. Seems to show up in her conversation responses to Jesus. And maybe a lot dry inside. And all of a sudden, there's the connection with all the conversation about water. This woman is dry on the inside. That's why Jesus is turning the conversation to eternal water and living water. You see, we remember that the water was turned into wine in John chapter 2. And we remember from the story of Nicodemus that Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. And in the, in the short little story, right before this one, there's a debate over baptism. Water's important. It's not just something necessary for physical life. It becomes symbolic of something else going on, of the kind of life that comes only from God. This woman has gone through five husbands looking for something, but is still dry. Here she was at high noon on a hot day with no friends drawing stale water from a hundred foot well all by herself, just like she did yesterday and the day before and just like she will tomorrow and the day after that. She was drier than the dust that covers the road. There was no hope and no meaning to her life. And I can't help but wonder, is, is it despair or is it one last deflection that causes the woman to challenge Jesus? Okay, prophet, where should we worship? Here on this mountain or down there in Jerusalem at Mount Zion? Is this frustration, a deflection? Is this, is this a stump the prophet question? Or has the bitterness of lifeless worship finally been exposed by Jesus' words? Is it possible that the five husbands are also symbolic of the five books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of the old Torah that they hold to. Is it possible that this is about dry worship versus life-giving worship. And that's the real issue that Jesus is trying to explore with this survivor. Jesus' longest response to this woman happens in verses 21 through 24. That certainly suggests that worship is the issue and that this whole symbolism of water is something important that needs to be attended to. Jesus says it's not about where you worship. Jesus doesn't advocate for worship either at Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim. And because we've read the Gospel of John and we know the story of Nicodemus and the things before that, we know that right before Nicodemus, Jesus has cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. And in the debate after that, Jesus says very clearly, my body is the true temple. You see, it's not about where we worship geographically. It's about the attitude that we bring to worship. It's about spirit and truth because that's what's consistent with God's nature. God, worship is about attitude and who we're worshiping. It's not about where. Now that last response of Jesus sets up the big reveal for the conversation. And the woman says, 
I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now that's a little puzzling and revealing at the same time. I'm not sure how much the Samaritans understood about Messiah or what kind of Messiah that might be. If the only books of the Bible they've got are the five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, boy, there's not a lot to go with in there about Messiah. And there's no way to see a connection between Messiah and reconciliation and atonement or whatever other words you want to use. But they may have understood Messiah as a prophet like Moses who can explain the law to them and teach them. And that would be consistent with the way the woman had responded to Jesus or asked Jesus that she, had, she thought or she knew Messiah was coming and he would explain everything to her. But I think it also reveals something about her, and that is we're further getting the idea that it might be a muted hope in appealing to a Messiah, that she is dissatisfied with the worship that she's had so far. She's dissatisfied with the status quo in religion. The worship and faith that this woman grew up with has been battered by a hard life. It doesn't work for her anymore. And yet she holds out a sliver of hope for a Messiah that's going to be able to explain things for them and make sense of it all. And Jesus sees the moment with a response that gets lost in translation. Jesus simply says, I am. I am. It's not just a declaration of identity with Messiah. It's the revelation that God gave Moses from the burning bush. I am. It's God's powerful, all-encompassing, personal name. The Gospel of John uses this absolute emphatic over 20 times of Jesus. In effect, Jesus says, I am the Messiah beyond your expectations. And the question of Jesus' identity, which has percolated all through this conversation, finally bursts forth with that dramatic conclusion and announcement. And at this point, the conversation ends. The disciples come, the woman leaves. And we're kind of left hanging right there. The, the, the disciples are beside themselves that Jesus was talking with this Samaritan woman, but they don't have the guts to confront him about it. All they do is whisper among themselves. But meanwhile, the woman has gone back to town and is talking with others about Jesus, folks that she have been, has been avoiding before. Interesting change there. And they come to the well and confess Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now, the original Greek says the Savior of the cosmos. I think that's important it tells, to understand the cosmic reality of God's salvation for everything. It's not just about good people. It's not just about Jews. It's about everything that is that God's going to bring together in Christ Jesus, we're told. He's not just the Savior of Jews or of good people. God, Jesus is also the Savior, the unexpected Savior, of this unlikely Samaritan woman and the entire universe. Now given this, what can we learn about talking with others about Jesus? Well, five things I think are worth paying attention to. 
the first is that we need to remember we're not Jesus. This is the truth for, for everything through here and for any conversation we have. We can't know with certainty the things that Jesus knew. Uh, and, and we have, don't have the authority to speak the kind of judgment or condemnation that Jesus could speak. So, they, so we have to trust the Spirit, and we have to speak in humility. And we also need to remember that the conversation is, is about Jesus, it's not about us. And that the conversation has missed the point if it's not undergirded by and always ended up pointing to Jesus, who is the great I Am the savior of the entire universe. The second thing is we need to be prepared for unexpected opportunities that involve people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't act like us. There may be things about them that we find offensive and behaviors we think are immoral. But if God is Lord and savior of all the universe, then such persons have to be included in that conversation. The third is the realization that there are many people like this woman. They are survivors of a hard life. They've tried many things, but they're still disappointed and dry inside, even if they don't admit it to themselves. They may have had some experience with religion, and they are cynical or even bitter over it. And they are probably suspicious of anyone who, talks, who, who wants to have a serious conversation about life. And the fifth and the final thing is that Jesus did not argue with her or contradict her. He didn't react negatively to her jabs and her sarcasm. He spoke consistently of hope and meaning and life, not judgment and condemnation. And his behavior toward her projected acceptance, not repulsion or hatred. And the final thing is, we may not see an immediate response. The woman left with no indication of what was going on. We only know it because of the afterward to the conversation. We need to realize this is not a contest and nobody's keeping score. We may have planted a seed but somebody else is going to have the harvest. And likewise, we may see the result of work that others have done long before us. In either case, the harvest is the Lord's, and we are privileged to be field hands. Melody and Josh are going to come back and sing our and lead us in our closing song. And so I invite you to use this as a time of response, you know, right where you are to make some commitments about things. And the first thing is, are you dry inside? Is it time to take a closer look at that? Is it because I've been trying to do all the wrong things and do it all on my own? Is it time to accept the living water that God offers us in Jesus Christ and to begin living that abundant life which is promised us? Do you need to have living water? I especially invite you to make that decision today. Or maybe you need to make some prayers for preparation and unlikely conversations and encounters. You may not have paid attention to those as they've come on you before, but maybe you need to pray for eyes to see those unlikely opportunities as they present themselves and about how to respond to them. Or maybe you have some prejudices that need to be corrected before you can talk with someone who doesn't look or act like you. That's hard for us. 
Maybe they're not squeaky clean either. All those are things, are ways to respond this morning, and I invite you to do that as we stand and sing. Thanks, Dwight.